Do you remember playing dress up as a kid? You know, where you'd get into your mom's or your dad's clothes or shoes and role play being an adult. Pretty common for kids to do that. And when you think about it, we kind of do the dress up thing throughout life. I mean, clothes and style and all that are something that becomes part of us. What's the saying? Clothes make the man or the woman. Because it really is a valid observation. People will judge you by the clothes you wear. And likewise, you will judge others. And you will, in ways, judge yourself by the clothes you wear. Well, this week on Discover the Word, we're going to take notice of how the Bible is filled with mentions of clothing, both literal and figurative. (laughs) Sounds crazy, but I think we'll discover how clothes help tell the story and message of the Bible. Part of our conversation is called Dress Up on Discover the Word. And I do think you're going to be surprised by how often clothes are part of the story of the Bible. Looking forward to you making that connection as we explore this together. Because, I mean, clothes are part of our everyday lives. Every day we get dressed in something, we put on clothes. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And it is good to have you as part of the group as we get ready to start another series of conversations that Elisa will be leading this time around called Dress Up. And uh, where we'll begin is, well, at the beginning. Within the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we run into the first reference to clothes, a reference that comes out of not wearing any clothes. Okay, have you guys ever heard of a kind of a weird TV program? It's called Naked and Afraid. It's on some cable network. I've actually never seen it, but have you heard of it? I've heard of it. How can you forget it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a survival type show, right? The idea is that you don't have clothes on, you're out in the wilderness, and can you survive when you're not covered in the most basic of ways? Yes, it's such a weird concept, and yet it caught on with a certain following. Why do you think Mm. that would be interesting to people? Well, I mean, you can't be much more vulnerable, right, in some ways. And so there's like this level of vulnerability and probably plays on the imagination and maybe not the best of ways as well. Yeah, there's got to be native interest in all. I mean, all of us know Mm -hmm. what nudity is all about, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's an obvious attraction Yeah, I think also the survival component is a big deal because we all kind of wonder, you know, if everything went off the rails, could I make it? Could I survive? And so watching people try to do that, I think there's a certain intrigue Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and I think you hit it. I think each one of you has said it. Use the word, there's a vulnerability in it. Mm. We feel vulnerable when we're not clothed, don't we? It's a part of dreams, I think we've talked about mm-hmm. in the past. I mean, even the thought yeah, of, of right. showing up in my underwear in a classroom <laughs> in school. You know, that used to be one of my reoccurring nightmares. Yes. Yeah. There's a sense of vulnerability. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for going there, guys, because 
this isn't something we think about very often, and we sure don't talk about it very much, but there is a, an enormous vulnerability exposure to the naked condition. And I think it's even more startling to realize because that is so primal to us. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. whether we're tiny or old, it's so primal, this sense of vulnerability and fragility. It's startling to think that there was a time when nakedness was nothing to be ashamed of. When the first people on the planet were naked and unafraid, naked and unashamed, fine being naked, didn't even really know they were naked. Mm. So our experience of this deep vulnerability is not something we were made with, is it? Mm. No. It's interesting, though, when you talk about innocence, the only person that I can think of who would not feel ashamed would be a little child. And we laugh about yeah. it when a very little child comes out without any clothes on. <laughs> it's so mm -hmm. true, Bart. But there's a certain innocence there that does hark back yeah. to the beginning. Mm -hmm. You're on to something. I think you're truly on to something. We're going to have a, a conversation about nakedness and about clothes and the role they both played in the Bible, in Scripture. It's called Dress Up. And today we want to focus in on the very first experience of nakedness, and therefore the very first experience mm. of clothes and the need for clothes. And we're going back to the garden. We're going back to Genesis chapters two and three. Do you think we could just net out the story? And then I'm going to direct our attention to a couple of specific passages about nakedness and clothes. So what's happening in Genesis two? And say we pick it up more towards the end, you know, after the Lord put the man in the garden to work it and take care mm -hmm. of it. And he commands everybody, you're free to eat from any tree, but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll die. That's in Genesis 2, verse 15, mm -hmm. 16 or so. Then what happens? Well, when we get to verse 18, there's this really shocking statement because God has created the world and called it very, very good. And then all of a sudden, God says, it's not good for something. Yeah. So you're like, wait, what is not good? And yeah. it's not good that the man, the Adam, be alone by himself. He needs a companion. And yeah. so then God creates Eve. It's interesting that um, just before that statement, Daniel, God presents to the man all the animals that he's created so that he can name them. And it's almost like as he sees all these creatures in pairs, it creates within him an awareness that he does not have a counterpart. So good. Mm. And then in verse 25, the word says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, now the serpent enters and he begins to whisper just crafty stuff to Eve. And, and then she begins to take the fruit that is forbidden and eats it. And she offers some to her husband. In verse 7, what do we see there? Bill, do you have that? Verses, uh, chapter sure. 3, verse 7. And read just a couple of verses there. Then the eyes of both of them, the man and the woman, were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, now notice there's no shame before this. You know, they're naked and unashamed. They're naked and unafraid 
before they eat of the fruit and their eyes are opened. And now all of a sudden, nakedness is bad and nakedness has this element of shame that's coupled with it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too, that this all starts from the serpent who's crafty. And that word, we're told that he's crafty, tempting them both away from God. And they end up realizing they're naked, which means they've lost their innocence, which means they're exposed. And what do they do in response that you just read that, Bill? They do what? They they create clothing of some sort, yeah. And what do they use to make the clothing? It says that they used leaves. leaves. Uh, they made it out of fig leaves, leaves from fig trees. Hmm. And the way it's phrased is like they twisted the vines together, connected them in such a way that they made more than just one leaf, and hmm. they would use it to cover just certain parts of them. And then they hide. You know, at least I'm stuck on the word realized. They realized they were naked. And it seems to me that before the sin, there was almost an absence of self-awareness. And I think we know that our obsession with self-awareness can be one of our biggest problems. Hmm. We can become so consumed with ourselves. But before, there was no self-awareness and they were fine. But the moment they become truly self-aware, that's when the problem begins. You know, Bill, when you talk about the realization, I'm kind of wondering what it would be like if we could see a clock on all of this. Mm. There's a sense of time. You know, Mm -hmm. did this happen instantly? Did it happen over a period of hours or days? There's a process Mm-hmm. in that realization that you're seeing. Yeah. That's so good, mm-hmm. Mark, because we imagine this as an instantaneous thing and we don't really know. But you're right, mm-hmm. Bill. They realize there's this self-awareness, this vulnerability, this ashamedness that comes in and they cover up and they don't just cover up their bodies, they cover up themselves mm-hmm. and they hide from God. And that's what we're told here. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. In verse 9, but the Lord called to the man and he said, where are you? And Adam answers, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. So it's not just the hiding of their bodies from one another, Mm -hmm. but it's a hiding of themselves from the presence of God, or at least trying to as well. So this eye-opening experience, this realization, is one that not only makes them look at one another differently, But as they think about God as he's coming into the garden to be with them, it's shaped how they now think about him too, to the point where it's like, even these leaves aren't enough to hide us from him. Let's Mm -hmm. go find a place to try to hide from him. Yeah, it's interesting, Lisa, to go back to where we started at the beginning with the program, Naked and Afraid. They were naked and unafraid, and now they're clothed and afraid. Mm -hmm. So good, Bill. What a contrast. And we've been completely attached and dependent upon clothes of our making pretty much ever since, haven't we? Hmm. So we make clothes of our own making. I am so struck. This gets me every time and I almost start weeping at God's response. In verse 11, he says, who told you you were naked? Hmm. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Hmm. And they confess and they're embarrassed. And then somebody grabbed three, verse 21 and 22. Of Genesis. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God, tenderly, this blows me away, tenderly 
bends down and says, your fig leaves are not going to protect you the way you need protection now. They're not going to cover you the way you need covering now. Let me, your creator, provide a covering for you. And and God mm. sacrifices some of his own created animals to make the very first coverings for his son and his daughter. And what a beautiful foreshadowing of what he would create for all of us eventually in the covering of Jesus and his sacrifice for us to, to bridge that separation that we would be brought together in perfect unity, back together with God and unashamed. What a tender God who makes a way for us in the midst of our messes. Okay, I just read this statistic and it blew me away. There is 1.3, almost 1.4 trillion dollars spent every year in the global apparel market. That's Mm. clothes. 1.3, almost 1.4 trillion dollars every year. That's a lot of sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> Do we even know what a trillion is? I mean, yeah. too many zeros. Way too many zeros. I don't even know. Is that nine zeros? Whatever. It's nine a... zeros. Yeah, nine. And, you know, honestly, what I Googled is I found out that um, the U.S. and I forget the other. Oh, China. The U.S. and China are the biggest consumers. Of clothing. Mm. But probably for different reasons. Yeah, what do you think? Probably because of affluence in America and probably because of the volume of people in China. Okay. Yeah. Why are clothes so important to us? I mean, think about all the reasons. Just throw some out here. I mean, if we're going to do some adventuring or something, we want to have the right clothes to wear as we hike or ski or swim. There's a kind of a protection and equipping mm. that happens with clothes. My raw poor little feet are not going to climb a mountain without some hiking mm-hmm. boots, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people say there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing, right? Mm. So like if you have the right clothes, you can do just about anything. Yeah. I wonder what the number would be if we were speaking merely in utilitarian mm-hmm. purposes, mm. just to clothe okay. ourselves or to do whatever we yeah. had to do to function. Yeah, no doubt it would be significantly yeah. less. But in saying that, Mart, I think you're onto something. Likely this number, 1.4 trillion, includes a lot of non-essentials. Why are sure. non-essential clothings important to us? Fashions change. You have wide lapels and skinny lapels. You have wide neckties and skinny neckties. You have no collars. You have collars. You have button-down collars. You have, I mean, fashions change. And for people for whom those things are important... Mm-hmm. That means you've got to continually be refreshing your wardrobe. Because what happens if you're dressed inappropriately? You could not get a job or you could be embarrassed. Um, Yes. Yeah. Has anybody ever shown up at a, you know, a a picnic thinking this was really super casual and everybody's like dressed all chic and stuff, you know, or has anybody ever gone to a wedding thinking this was way formal and everybody's in their denim? I mean, you feel just weird if you're not dressed like everybody else, right? So that's why we need this variety. There's a social gaffe in some cultures. Like, Mm -hmm. for instance, I remember when I went to Italy and I went into some of the cathedrals, I needed to cover bare shoulders. When I've been in Africa in ministry moments, I've needed to make sure I had a longer skirt on. In some cultures, women need to wear a head covering. There's so many elements behind clothes and the appropriateness of them and, and what they should be like. We're looking at clothes in scripture this week. 
And I've been stopped in my tracks by the usage of clothes in scripture. And a lot of times I haven't ever noticed before. And I'm starting to understand that clothes can mean something in the Bible. And in a different culture than our own, could have a very different meaning, right? It does. And you know, the Bible covers thousands of years (laughs) over a lot of different (laughs) cultures. So there aren't like these real black and white, quick little jots we can do to understand the use of clothes. But think for a second about some of the maybe more memorable mentions of clothing in scripture. Mm. What comes to mind? Just anything. There's chapters devoted to what the priests should wear in the Mm -hmm. tabernacle and in the temple. Good. I think a little Joseph getting that mm-hmm. many-colored quote from his dad. Great. That was really good, which signified how special he was to his father and perhaps more loved than any of his brothers. Mm-hmm. Which made them furious. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, a lot of times in the scriptures, it seems like clothing is a reflection of social standing mm-hmm. because it's very stratified societies almost throughout. And so different classes of people wore different kinds of clothes. And that coat that you're talking about, Mart, that uh, Jacob gave to Joseph, a lot of translations call it a, a coat of many colors. I read one scholar who said you could translate it a coat with sleeves. Hmm. which would send a message to his brothers because if you wore sleeves, you weren't expected to work because you needed freedom of movement to work, and so you wore clothes without sleeves. So either way, there was a pretty strong message being sent that Joseph was special Mm -hmm. as opposed to his brothers. That is so insightful. What both of you are pointing out, there's this classism and then there's this special love that's Mm -hmm. communicated through what clothes? And if we don't understand that, we might miss something in certain passages. And Bill, you mentioned that some class distinctions, you know, we see the use of purple or linen Mm -hmm. in clothing in scripture. I think about the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament. I think it's in Luke 16, where the rich man is clothed in purple. Well, purple was from a really rare dye and only the very Mm -hmm. wealthy had it. So Mm -hmm. these little tiny details we can gloss over or miss Here's one thing, too, is that the lack of clothing is always viewed negatively in the Bible. It represents poverty or defeat or helplessness, even shame. And I think about the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 about when you see someone who is naked and you don't clothe them. You know, there is a shame associated with not having clothes. So whether we're looking at clothes or whether we're looking at the lack of clothes, Both communicate standing in place in society in need, right? And that type of lack of clothes that you're talking about is where someone doesn't have, right? Because the only example I can think of where maybe the lack of clothing is a positive is when David chooses not to wear certain clothes to dance before the Ark of the Covenant. But that isn't because he doesn't have it. He's getting rid of the things that wouldn't allow him to dance, right? So the the long robe that he does have possession of. So is that kind of what you're saying is like the lack of clothing, meaning that you're in poverty, you don't have clothing. Thank you for distinguishing that. That's right. So we know that the poverty and the embarrassment of not having clothing is always significant. Mm -hmm. What you're pointing out is that when people change their clothes, like David taking off his royal robes and dancing before the ark, or we think about Israel coming out of captivity. I think this is in Isaiah several places about removing the the ashes for a crown of beauty or the you know, taking on a garment of praise instead of despair. 
There is a change of status. And so when we look at scripture, I think it's really important to understand that clothes or the lack of them can be a cue to the meaning of various passages. I think maybe one of the clearest examples of that is at the cross where the soldiers gamble for Jesus's clothing because the soldiers were allowed to take the loot of of the condemned and all Jesus had in this world was his clothes. Mm. And uh, they took and divided them and then gambled for the one piece that couldn't be divided. And I think it says something about Jesus of how minimal his possessions were and how in the things of this world, Mm. he would have been seen as a poor man. Mm. And taking that maybe just a little bit further, Bill, you're right. Jesus on the cross was about as naked as you could be in society. And if we understand what we've just discovered there, you know, nakedness was a sign of our ultimate need of our poverty. God's son himself bore that, that God might clothe us, you know, as a way of covering our need and protecting us from ourselves. How beautiful it is that God himself Mm. carried that. Mm. I think of some other cues of clothes. I think about the tearing of robes that happened in grief or despair. Can you think of some examples? Yeah, David, after the death of Saul and Jonathan, tears his robes and Mm -hmm. mourns. In fact, some of the people, I think, call him out on that, right? Because they're like, Mm -hmm. hey, you're the king now. You should be celebrating. Mm -hmm. But he mourns the death of God's anointed. So what would be the meaning of that, Mm -hmm. the idea of tearing your clothes? What would that imply? I think it was symbolic of the heart being torn. Uh, You would tear the garments, you know, kind of at the collar. You would rip it there. It was a way of saying your heart has been ripped open. Mm. So there's great grief. And there can be also tearing of clothes like Saul turned to Samuel and tore his cloak as he lost God's blessing in being the king of Mm -hmm. Israel. Or another situation, I think about when Elijah actually took the mantle, his outer garment, and put it over on Elisha, his his successor. These odd moments in Scripture we can miss. Clothes maybe represent one of our greatest needs, our need for covering, our need for cleansing, our need for protection, our need to be rescued from the mess we've made and separating ourselves from our God. And just as God bent and fashioned coverings for Adam and Eve, I think as we look through Scripture, we're going to see a a role of clothing that can serve as cues for how does it represent the heart of our God and how does our God provide for our need, even in the element as basic as clothing. And so in our conversation so far, we're seeing how clothing is not only connected to our physical needs and modesty and self-esteem and identity, uh, clothes also represent our spiritual need for God's covering and redemption. Clothes are part of the story of the Bible, and they often speak into something deeper and more significant. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast, and uh, when Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel come back, Elisa wants us to think about new clothes. you got to admit, there's just something about getting new clothes. That, when our series about how clothes are part of how the story of the Bible is told, continues. Now, Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, the publishers of the Our Daily Bread devotional. 
And if you want even more engaging content from Our Daily Bread Ministries, then I would encourage you to check out something fairly new we're doing with the Our Daily Bread Daily Video Devotionals. Now, maybe your grandparents and parents used to read the devotional booklet, and maybe you still do. And maybe you have the Our Daily Bread app on your phone. Well, these video devotionals are another way to help you spend time reflecting on the scriptures. And you can find a link to watch the Our Daily Bread video devotionals on YouTube when you visit our discovertheword.org website. And then if you'd like to keep watching them, you can keep going back to that YouTube channel that we linked you to, or you can get an email with a link every day. Uh, you can get a text with the link. I get the email every day. There are lots of ways to get them. So check them out. I think you'll like them. And now let's get back to this series of conversations on the Discover the Word podcast called Dress Up, exploring how clothes are part of how the story and message of the Bible is told. So can you remember a season, maybe in your family, where everybody got something new to wear? Or maybe it was an event. First day of school, mom and dad would make sure that each of us if we didn't have anything else, we were going to have a nice set of clothes to wear on the first day of school, and we kind of did that with our kids, too. That's great. Boy, you know what, Bill? It must show where I am in life. I forgot <laughs> all about that. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> I'm thinking of something I don't remember, but I know exists because there's pictures of it, and that is at some point in my childhood, my mom and dad felt that we should get those family pictures made at... I think it was Sears back in the day. And um, <laughs> so there's pictures of us all dressed very coordinated. and um, Matchy, matchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of my times I'm more proud of in life with glasses and crooked <laughs> teeth and, you know, one of those forced smiles that they make you smile. <laughs> That's cute. Okay. And I think about Easter's, you know, I grew up in a place where we would all get little Easter dresses, you know, and it was always just like starched and puffy and little puffy sleeves. And we looked so darling and we ran around chasing Easter eggs. And that was my new clothes things. But I wonder Mm -hmm. too, you know, if anybody's had a wedding in their family, you may have had new clothes for that as well, right? Yeah. I always get kind of frustrated when I have to buy something for a wedding. But that's just me. <laughs> it's not just you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're talking about the groomsman and the bridesmaid one. Yeah, that's we'll it. never that's wear these shoes one. again. <laughs> hey, count <laughs> me in, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in this series we're in on clothes, it's called Dress Up. We've looked at a couple of things so far. Remind us, let's just review really quick. There have been two discoveries that we've unpacked together. What are they? The first one was that we had uh, no need for clothes Mm -hmm. in the created state. There was innocence and there was a lack of shame. But one of the first things that the first sin brought into the human experience was shame over nakedness and the need for clothing. Mm -hmm. And who made the first set of clothes? Adam and Eve. And then what happened after they made their fig leaf clothes? God made clothes mm-hmm. uh, from animal skins mm-hmm. for them to cover them. Yeah. yeah, Which is stunning to me that God mm-hmm. would provide for our greatest mistake, really. And then, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, isn't that just the whole story of Scripture? His creation of us to be in relationship with us are going, mm, maybe not. His going, I can fix this for you. He made mm-hmm. clothes for us. Okay, well, what's the second discovery we've had about dressing up clothes? 
that they have significance in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they show up throughout the Bible, and when they do show up, oftentimes it's something for us to pay attention to because it's a part of the story. Yeah, so clothes can cue us into other meanings in an otherwise maybe flat story. They provide the dimension, and we need to pay attention to those details. And we read these familiar mm-hmm. stories, and all of a sudden we see this pop of where clothes take on. Today we're going to move into another discovery, and that is what's the role of new clothes in various stories in scripture. Think about this when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. What does he tell everybody to do with the grave clothes? They're supposed to remove them. Yeah. yeah. But I'm assuming they probably took him home first. <laughs> um, because then you get back to the issue of naked and embarrassed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder about the prodigal son. Okay. He comes home in rags. His father lifts up his status-laden robes as one of the elders of the community, we think. And he runs and greets his son and brings him back and says, put a new robe on him. He gets new clothes because he's restored to his status as a son. That's a good one. And likely we think, you know, he was eating with the pigs. His old clothes likely were rags and tattered and filthy, if he even had any left. So what a beautiful image that is Mm -hmm. of God again, the the, the father Mm -hmm. clothing the prodigal you and me, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this idea of new clothes, I also thought about it when David was grieving the death of his son. He tears his robes and stuff, but he gets up after he's finished grieving and he washes and he changes his clothes (laughs) and he Mm -hmm. starts anew. Mm -hmm. So let's hold this together. And I want us to, to go into the New Testament and look at this metaphor, and that's what it is, that the Apostle Paul uses over and over in many of his letters to the New Testament church that talks about new clothes and their role. And so what I want to do is just, I'm going to hand out some scriptures here. And if y'all can grab them, let's just read the verses that have to do with new clothes and see if we can stitch together at some, (laughs) some meanings here. Okay. So somebody grab Romans 13, 13 to 14. And then Mark, could you get Galatians 3, 26 to 27? All right. And Bill, you get to get Ephesians 4. Four, maybe just 22 okay. to 24. Let's just read those through. Okay. Just take them one at a time. So this is Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And the context of this is uh, what starts in chapter 12 of Paul describing new life in Christ. And in Romans 13, 14, he writes, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, and just a moment there to, to focus, clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm, yeah. What do you think he means? It's just cover yourself with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cover yourself with him, cover yourself with the characteristics of who he is, of how yeah. he acts, mm-hmm. of what yeah. he looks like. And again, the context of this, right, is him talking about mm-hmm. this transformed, renewed mind Good. that looks very differently. You begin to act differently mm-hmm. and look differently in the way that you go through the world. That's good, Daniel. I think it's not just about the inside. It's about let yourself be changed on the inside so Mm -hmm. it changes your appearance. Yeah. Yeah. In other places, Paul talks about us being in Christ. And this is maybe one way that that manifests is Mm. being clothed in him and who he is. And in the relationship we have with him. Okay, who did Mm -hmm. I give next, Mart? I think you're Galatians 3, 26, 27. Yeah, okay. Paul writes, for you all... 
are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Okay, and the ritual often for early Christians' baptism included putting on a new set of clothes. So there would be something concrete that the readers could really relate to. Hmm. For us, you know, we often put on a white robe if we're going to be immersed or, you know, sometimes we're in a lake and, you know, whatever. But that represents this new life. Okay, how about Ephesians? And uh, like Daniel said about his, the context of Ephesians 4 is also uh, how we live out our faith, how we, in a sense, wear our faith in front of people. So Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which clothes and really he's talking about self, you know, taking off this old self, putting on the new self. And then in Colossians, he goes another reference to it. He says, don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. This is in chapter three, and you've put on the new self. And then down in verse 12, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. Mm. And he's talking about the external behavior we have. All of these are metaphorical. All of these are about the old life and the new life. Yeah. And it's something thoughtful, isn't it? There's a a sense of intention. Make Mm. it your purpose. Think about Mm. this. Just the same way we think about what clothes we're going to wear today. Mm -hmm. You know, we put thought into that. And sometimes we put quite a bit of thought into it. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. It's kind of like he's kind of saying, don't let's just go ahead as if nothing's happened. Think about this. Yeah. When you put it in this context of this theme of clothes throughout the scriptures, then you see like actually Paul's simplifying it. He's saying like exactly what you said, Mark, like in the same intention by which you wear clothes, think about the way that you treat other people. Think about mm. the way you come across and what you say and in what you do. Mm. Bill, would you wrap it up for us? Read us 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And let's let this thought cover us and clothe us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creatures. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Okay, you guys, I want you to just go with what happens in your heads here. What's a power suit? I don't know what you mean by that term, but like superheroes come to mind for me. It's probably not right, though. I thought of a blue suit with uh, what a burgundy tie. Okay. Yeah. Two-piece or three-piece? I guess it'd be three-piece, wouldn't it? Okay. You know what I thought? Uh, you'll be shocked at this, but my mind went to sports. I thought about, um, for instance, the New York Yankees, the pinstripes. Mm. Uh, there have been times in the history of baseball where they said just the sight of the pinstripes was intimidating. Hmm. Uh, that's good. Can I ask a question about the three-piece suit? How is that a power suit? A lot of people in the corporate world, uh, a lot of men in the corporate world especially, would dress in what they would consider their power suits if they were going to a critical meeting. Uh, Or you think of a lawyer in a courtroom who would dress to kind of 
present themselves in an intimidating way. So I think that's the power behind the power suit, right, Elisa? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, women have a version of that, too, in business or in politics or in courtrooms, as you're saying, a, a power pants suit or a power dress suit. But I think it's fun as we're in this conversation about clothes in the Bible. We come today to a conversation I want to have on power suits, a power suit that actually the Apostle Paul exhorts us all as believers to put on. Where are we going to go today? We're going to the what? The armor of God. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. And another thing I want us to think about as we read this passage and think about the role of clothes and why Paul would even use this metaphor to make his point, I want us to think too about how do we kind of sort of put on our power suit, but then we leave some stuff at home? You know, mm. Be thinking about that, because this is a list that he gives us that make up the armor of God or the power suit that God has designed for us to wear as we clothe ourselves with Jesus. This is the power suit that God's created for us to step into. Let's just start off and let's read verses 10 to 12 and let's get our bearings. Bill, would you read that for us? Sure. Ephesians 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If we can pause for a second, let's recall how we started our conversation about clothes It was in a setting in a garden with Adam and Eve. How did humankind first discover they were naked? How did they first become ashamed? And how did they then discover a rescue from their nakedness? Well, they failed to stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you put it in the wording that Paul uses in Ephesians 6.11, Satan deceived them and it produced the problem that we're still living with today. Yeah. You know what I see there too is um, Paul says here, our struggles not against flesh and blood. The temptation seemed like it was all about the fruit, right? Like it's just the exterior, the physical world. Hey, just eat this fruit. It looks good. But there was a much bigger and deeper story happening, Mm -hmm. which was Satan trying to get Adam and Eve to doubt God. Hey guys, you know what? I'm still missing it. I had never thought before about the connection between Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and Eden. But you're right, it's it's there. In Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And then we come straight mm-hmm. here to Ephesians, and it's take your stand against the devil's, if you will, crafty schemes. And mm. the whole reason to put on this clothes is, you know, Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, God, our beautiful providing father, knew it wasn't sufficient. And so he crafted garments made out of animal skins, shedding the blood of animals in order to provide a covering for his precious beloveds. You know, the same thing is here is that God really is the one who has to provide our covering because our covering is against the evil one. And he does that. Mm. It's beautiful to see how far he goes. He says to be strong and stand firm. Um, The victory's already been won. So you need to stand in the victory. At least if somebody asks, how has the victory already been won? What do you know about that? Isn't the victory what we know happened on the cross? 
in terms of what Jesus did. He became victorious over what? Over Satan, over our sin. Over our separation, over our mm-hmm. death. He mm-hmm. reunited us. He rescued us once and for all. And we often mm. act like that hasn't happened yet, you know, because we're still alive and we still aren't united with him. But Paul's saying, no, that's already happened. You have all that power available to you right now. Put on your power suit. Mm. Put on your power mm-hmm. suit. You don't have to stand unprotected or unclad before mm. your enemy. And you know what, Elisa, as you describe it that way, put on your power suit, all of the illustrations that we were talking about, all of them are people who we would talk about going into battle. And so this suit is also for going into battle. Mm -hmm. It's not a literal suit of armor Mm -hmm. because it's not a physical battle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes maybe we don't experience the victory because we forget about the power suit or we leave parts of it off or we think Mm -hmm. we can do it by ourselves. So let's read the rest of this little section here. This is Ephesians 6 verses 13 down to 17. And let's listen to these elements that make up this figurative, as you pointed out, Bill, power suit. Are we cladding ourselves in every element that God makes available to us? Mark, do you want to pick it up in Ephesians six thirteen? Okay, Paul writes, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These were elements that the readers would understand. You know, a belt of truth is like a leather apron. You know, it would protect down to the thighs. Or the breastplate would be a, a chest shield that protected the heart. There were proper footwear you would wear. There was a shield of faith, which is actually a huge, huge, like, shield made of wood that you'd cover with fabric, and it would extinguish arrows. And this helmet would be a bronze metal helmet, on and on. These would be physical elements that the readers would understand and relate to. And Paul's wooing us all forward to understand that there is a figurative covering or protection that is not just to fight the battles in this world, but to stand up against the crafty schemes of our enemies. Mm. As we think about this then, do I put on the full power suit? that God makes available to me, that he fashions for me every day to stand in because of Jesus's victory on the cross, as you pointed out for us, Mart. Do I put it on? Or do I think, oh, you know, I'm fine. I got this, God. And I go about my life ignoring the craftiness of the evil one, ignoring the fact that I'm still fighting against the spiritual realms that would love for me to not experience the connection that God died for me to have? Or am I thinking carefully about clothing myself in Christ, putting on the full power suit and standing firm in it and trusting him to cover me no matter what I'm facing and what my enemy is bringing up against me today? So what about the person that's like me thinking like, okay, that sounds great. Then I need to put on this armor, but how do I do that? What does it mean to put on the armor of God? Hmm. 
I think in a sense, Daniel, what it could mean is to live intentionally, to live in awareness, to live in a sense with our spiritual eyes wide open, recognizing that, yes, we do have a spiritual foe who is very real, but we also have spiritual resources in Christ. And to live in awareness of that and to live intentionally leaning into those resources in Christ. Yeah, and for example, like uh, the breastplate of righteousness, I think it pictures a, a right relationship with Christ. Hmm. So that we're drawing on his goodness, his rightness, and that protects us against the evil one. And I think if we go through each one of those elements, there is a practical and maybe even a personal application. You know, am I ready to share the gospel? Let's with the proper footwear. You know, have I really believing in the truth of what God says about me is real? That might be the belt mm. of truth, etc. Let that figurative language seep into my heart and, and challenge me. Am I putting that on? Am I standing in that today? Or am I just kind of like going through my life? Am I being intentional to put on my power suit? Our power suit. That is what they were talking about in that conversation. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast, and we'll wrap up this study called Dress Up with a conversation about heavenly clothes in a moment. And then next time on the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to find tucked away in the writings of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, a statement so significant that it is quoted in three places by the writers of the New Testament. It truly is one of the Bible's great ideas. And so what is it that makes these six words from an ancient prophet so critical? We'll find out as Bill Crowder leads the group in a study called Live by Faith on the next Discover the Word podcast. But now let's listen to the conclusion of this study of how clothes are part of how the story and message of the Bible are communicated. What would you wear if you were going to meet with Jesus person to person, face to face, what would oh, you put on? on? Yeah. You I want to be, be imaginative for just a second. I mean, it's kind of funny to think about it, but, you know, what would you put on? What would you hope to be wearing? You know, I think I would overthink it. You would too? Yeah. But I think what I have learned about the nature of Christ is I think he would want me to show up in my sweatpants and sweatshirt because that's who I really am. <laughs> that's kind of where I was going too, Daniel. I think, you know, when you see how Jesus met people where they were, mm-hmm. I think if you, you know, put on your best clothes and you put on, you know, boy, I really want to look spiffy for Jesus or whatever, I think it would be contrary to the way he meets with us. Hmm. Uh, he comes to us where we are, as we are, who we are, and accepts us that way. Yeah. Oh, you guys are so mature. Good night. I didn't know <laughs> what to do with that. <laughs> but you know what? I think you're onto something there. I'm thinking this is incredibly appropriate of how far he went to bring himself down into our lives, mm-hmm. into yeah. the fleshiness of our existence. It's stunning to think of that yeah. as a baby in a manger coming forth from a woman as a carpenter who walked mm-hmm. on the planet as as a an amazing man but then he was brutally crucified mm-hmm. and not only that but if you saw Jesus down the street it would have been the exact fulfillment of Isaiah 53 we didn't see anything special in him yeah. there's nothing remarkable he looked mm-hmm. like one of us yeah. in that sense and i think that degree of his willing to clothe himself in humanity so that we could be clothed in him is just really the stunning thing you've been leading us to this week, Elisa. 
And then that with the contrast, one of the themes of our conversation has been how intentional we are about wanting to present ourselves in certain ways. And just the contrast of Jesus' humility that you couldn't pick him out in a crowd. So there's even this contrast there. Yeah, I think that's huge because the way you're describing him, that was his character. That wasn't just Mm -hmm. something that he was putting on. That humility apparently is the very character of God himself, the Mm self-sacrificing God. What's interesting is when we see how he's clothed in Revelation 1, when he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, and we see Christ in a magnificent way, that shows just how far he went to do what you're saying, Mart, and to become one of us Mm -hmm. and to not separate himself from us, but to absolutely and totally identify with us. Mm. So let's take that right there that you've just pointed out, the stunning difference between what we see in Revelation of who Jesus really is, the Son of Man, the Almighty God, and let's look back at how far he went to come to earth in a baby and be born, etc. But let's go even further back and remind ourselves, we first experienced our own separation from God in the garden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and realized for the first time they were naked, they were unclothed. As they stood in their humanness, they were ashamed. They were afraid. They were separated. And God looked and saw their great need. He took some of his own animals and created skins to cover them. And Mm. from that moment forward, God would be covering to the extent that he takes his own son to inhabit flesh to cover us eventually. Mm. And so for our last conversation on this topic, dress up, I I want us to look at heavenly clothes. What kind of heavenly clothes will God dress us in when we meet him? And I want us to go to a a section of scripture that's very oblique, but we're going to try and take a high level view of it and just look at two questions. How are we raised? How's our body raised? And what kind of body is it going to be? We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in Paul's words. And the section is verses 35 to 55. And so, you know, we may want to dive into that individually deeper. But for right now, this first question is, how are our bodies raised? So let's read together verses 35 to 41 and see what answers we might come up with. Daniel, will you start us and then let's just go around? Mm-hmm. First Corinthians fifteen thirty-five. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. And there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has another, the stars another, and the stars differ from the stars in splendor. Okay, so what do we know? Bottom line, the body's going to be transformed. And how does Paul refer to this transformation? He uses nature as an example. What is he doing there? 
I think what he's doing, Elise, is he's telling us that we can't imagine this. If all you had was a seed of grain and all you had to look at was that, you could never imagine the plant that that would become. Hmm. I think in the same way, he's telling us that what we will be when we're made like Christ is beyond our ability to conceive Hmm. or imagine. Would I be stretching it too much then to say, okay, we can't begin to understand that, but would it be all right, Lord, if we just thought of it in terms of what Elise has been talking about this week, that in the beginning, we weren't afraid of you. Mm. Oh, that's good. We were comfortable. Yeah. And it was after we messed up so bad that we ran into the woods and tried to cover ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, somehow it seems like we are not going to be afraid of him then. Mm-hmm. He's going to clothe us in, in something that we can't really relate to. And we talked about putting off an old self and putting on a new. And we talked about hiding an old self and then God clothing us. There is this element of God will clothe our very selves in such a way that we are no longer separated from him at all. We are transformed. Mm -hmm. He's got in mind how to call forth the true essence of who we are back into relationship Mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the second question is... What kind of body are we going to have? How are we going to be raised? Is we're going to be transformed? And the second one is we're going to be into a different kind of body. These here are verses 42 down to 55. And rather than take all of that and try and read it and understand it, let's hone in on verses 42 to 44. Daniel, could you grab that? Yeah. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. The power suit from yesterday. (laughs) It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. All right, just those words. They're not as concrete as put on a head covering or the breastplate of righteousness or, you know, go put on white robes. They're not as concrete. These words, imperishable, glory, power, spiritual. And Paul contrasts them to perishable, dishonor, weakness, natural. So what kind of body can we surmise here? It's figurative, but what is he suggesting? What if it was a beautiful form of ourselves but it was just immortal. That seems to be, even if you look a little further down in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 53, he says the perishable must clothe itself with the mm-hmm. imperishable. So the biggest difference between what we are and what we will be is what we are dies. What we yeah. will be never will. So in verse 35, Paul says that people are asking what kind of body is it going to be? And he almost pushes back against that and says that the seed isn't going to be the same thing that the body looks like. So almost what type of body or what it looks like or what it's going to be seems to be beside the point of maybe, Mart, what you were saying of like the true person comes out. Mm -hmm. This true person that's been made in the image of God is now with God in his glory and is accepted Mm -hmm. without shame, without fear as the essence of who they are. And I'll bet we'll not only love what we look like, but we'll love what we are at that point. That's the point, I think, Mart, is there really is a transformation. And I like to think of it this way, is that we become who we already are 
in Jesus. Mm. He knew who he made us to be when we were in our mother's womb and he formed us. He's known the number of days and he's counted the hairs on our head and he's bottled our tears up in a bottle and he holds Mm. us close to his heart. And we who are so afraid of him, naked and ashamed and afraid and separated, we've lost view of who he really made us to be. And the imperishable body, the transformed body is a a reunion with the best he always intended for us as he draws us up into a transformative experience, a union with him in heavenly clothes. And what a great day that will be when we do finally meet Jesus face to face. And it's interesting, isn't it, that clothes are part of how the Bible helps us think about how great it is going to be. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day in a series titled Dress Up, exploring together how clothes are part of how the story and message of the Bible are communicated. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible, discover the Word. I encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. And thanks for remembering that it is listeners like you who help make Discover the Word possible. Your financial support allows Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries to make the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to literally millions of people around the world. And so if you'd like to make a one-time donation to support the ministry or give a monthly gift as a Discover the Word monthly partner, simply follow the easy steps online at discovertheword.org, click the Donate tab to explore your options at discovertheword.org. I'm Brian Heading. Thanks for listening. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.